Paul Theroux drove the back roads of Mexico along the length of the U.S. border to see for himself what life was really like behind today's brutal headlines. Imagine living your whole life a hundred yards from the United States, seeing <laughs> cars going back and forth, hearing life across the river. Coming up, Paul Theroux tells us about the eternal Mexico he encountered far from the tourist resorts. Ukraine's been getting noticed in the political news, but how does it fare as a tourist destination? It's overlooked, but it has this deep, rich, fascinating history. And you don't even have to go that far back because there's very recent stuff which is incredibly interesting and powerful to try to learn about. We got the sense that Ukraine is only just now starting to define its own national identity because for a lot of its history, it was sort of someone else's backyard, you know? A Ukrainian vacation and Paul Theroux's Mexican journey are all in the hour ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. Where are today's off-the-radar, inexpensive travel destinations? So many tourists from around the world are crowding into the same top travel sites. But a pair of travel writers that I work with are really jazzed about their recent trip to Ukraine. They'll tell us what Ukraine has to offer as a tourist destination a little later in the hour on today's Travel with Rick Steves. After more than 50 years of writing about his epic journeys in travel books and novels, Paul Theroux has recently finished a series of road trips on the back roads of Mexico. He wanted to see for himself who lives there, how they live, and what's really behind the headlines about a migration crisis from south of the U.S. border. And, by the way, you'll have to pardon my weak voice at the time we recorded our interview. It's better now. Paul Theroux, welcome. Rick, it's a pleasure to be with you. You know, this is such an exciting adventure you went on. And right at the beginning of the book, you write, The Mexican border is the edge of the known world, only shadows and danger beyond it, and lurking figures, hungry, criminal, predatory, fanged, fanatical enemies, an ungovernable rabble eager to pounce on the unwary traveler. So you decided to travel there. <laughs> Tell us where you went on this trip and why. Yeah, and the rest of that sentence is, and a tutti-frutti of grizzled gringos all over Mexico. <laughs> so why? Um, why? Because I noticed that people were stereotyping Mexicans, uh, Mexicans who come across the border, why they come there, <laughs> that they're illegal, looking for welfare, making trouble. And I thought, one of the reasons we travel, you're a great traveler, Rick, is to destroy the stereotype, to find out what people are really like. What's their story? And we find they come from all sorts of places. In Mexico, they might be billionaires. They might be millionaires. They might have no money at all. Some people in Mexico have less than the average person in Kenya or Bangladesh. So it's not a simple situation, but to see it at its best or to see it most clearly, I thought, I want to go alone. I want to go in my own car. I want to drive up and down the border, the border that everybody talks about, but no one knows at first hand or has written about much. And I want to see it drive along the border and then drive deep into Mexico. And I thought um, I bought a car for this purpose, you know, a secondhand car that wasn't very noticeable. And off I went. Not very noticeable, but it had Massachusetts license plates on it. Yeah, that was a little unfortunate because the, <laughs> the, the police <laughs> said, you know, they, they looked at my plates. And then they pull you off the road and they say, uh, ¿Sabes lo que puedo hacerte? Do you know what I can do to you? And you say, what exactly do you want? And then they say, pay me some mordida. It's that open, huh? So that happens. But I, people say, how awful. And I think, yeah, how awful. But On the Plain of Snakes is a travel book. And travelers... 
travel writers, role writers, have the last word. So I have the last word. Yeah. I, and that's a side of Mexico, the police side of Mexico that exists. And as travelers, we're not looking for La La Land in Orlando. We're looking for the reality. Go south of the border. We're looking to see things as they are. Mm -hmm. The good, the bad, the ugly, the, the fun, the whatever it is, the sunshine, the rain. You know, I was in the Peace Corps. I joined the Peace Corps in 1963, and I went to Central Africa. I didn't know what I was going to find. It was into the wild blue yonder. And what I found was not at all what I was expecting. Not at all. Our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves is author Paul Theroux. He just published an account of his road trips on the back roads of Mexico. His new book introduces us to the people he met and explains what he learned about life in Mexico far from the comforts of resorts and the safety of tollways. The book's called On the Plain of Snakes. You know, your book is about the wall, and I'm fascinated by walls in my travels. The Berlin Wall, the walls between the Protestant and Catholic neighborhoods in, in Belfast, the wall uh, between Palestine and Israel, and, uh, and this wall. I remember when I was in the Holy Land, on one side the wall looked a certain way, and then the other, from the other side it looked a lot different. Tell us about the actual wall, standing there, especially on the Mexican side, looking at it. What's it like? Well, the wall is a big piece of ironmongery uh, that looks like, it looks like a prison wall. I mean, it looks like a fence. It has slats in it. The first wall that I saw was in Nogales, maybe eight years ago, or possibly more, and it wasn't a wall that you could see through. It was actually big iron plates, steel plates, I guess mm -hmm. they were. They were rusty. 30 feet high, you couldn't see through them. It, it looked like, um, it didn't look like a fence at all. It actually looked like a wall. Uh, that's now slats. What does it look like? It, it looks like something that is surmountable. Looks like you could climb over it, and people do. It looks like you could tunnel under it, and people do. It also looks very beautiful. It looks like a piece of sculpture by the artist Christo. It looks like Christo went to the border and said, I'm going to show the world what a border looks like in metal. And so the, the fence, the steel border fence, goes up and down through hill and dale, undulating up in as far as the eye can see. And you think, how amazing, but how primitive too, because yeah. obviously it, kind it doesn't like, keep anyone out. Really. No. When I go as a traveler to these walls, the odd thing is, I can pass them easily. I can go from Israel to Palestine I, in the cold where I could go between east and west. You were south of the wall, and you wrote about the women in the diners there that kind of saw you as uh, maybe a ticket to the north. It must have been interesting for you to be in these hard scrabble little spots, and the wall was so close, and you could just waltz right back and forth, and they couldn't. Not only that, it's only, yeah, waltzing back. In Nogales, Arizona, you there's a door in the wall. The first time I saw it, there was a turnstile where you're in a, a street in Arizona, you know, with parked in the sunshine, park your car, walk down the end of the street, go through the door, and you're in Mexico. <laughs> Show your, I, mean, I showed my ID, and yeah. just by walking through a door. That, for a traveler, is such an amazing experience. To me, it was an experience of a kind that I'd, I'd never had before. I've crossed borders. You've been through many borders. But most borders that are memorable, you walk across, Kenya and Ethiopia, uh, China and Russia, yeah. Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, wherever, you know, Canada and, and the United States. But Mexico is, it, it's the wall. And also there's another language behind the wall. There's more yeah. cuisine behind the wall. And the women that you mention, some of whom want to go 
over the wall or around it to work in a motel or a hotel in the States uh, have left children behind, uh, husbands behind, and they're going, what I found is they're coming to make a living. Mm -hmm. But the most dramatic are the special interest aliens from China, from Syria, from Africa, Nigerian. They pay money to the cartels, and the cartels shepherd them across. You never hear about them. So what I, what I found was that Mexicans going across are the, the least of it. Those are the least dramatic. The most uh, would be a Chinese tycoon who has pays a cartel member uh, $50,000, and, and they, they're taken through a tunnel, of which there are many, huh. uh, into San Isidro, into San, San Diego. I didn't know that was an element of the uh, immigration problem. A very big element. If you go to a, a migrant prison or prison in Arizona, you'll find lots of Indians, lots of Pakistanis, lots of Nigerians, mm -hmm. Chinese. But the cartels own the border or own a great deal of the border. Wow. They control it because the punishment for human trafficking is a lot less than for drug trafficking. So a cartel member that's arrested helping people across as a coyote, or they call yeah. him pollero. Pollero uh -huh. is sort of like a chicken farmer, you know, right. pollero. Right. It's like pollos. <laughs> so they, they're caught. It's a very, very um, light it's sentence. A, a slap on the wrist. But if it's caught with a lot of cocaine, more serious. Uh, that's it. But they make money as human traffickers. We're joined by novelist and travel writer Paul Theroux right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Paul's taken us with him around the world for decades in his writing. His latest book describes his road trip discoveries along the U.S.-Mexico border. It's called On the Plain of Snakes, A Mexican Journey. His website is paultheroux.com. That's spelled T-H-E-R-O-U-X. Paul, I remember reading in your book talking about the wall and, and the juxtaposition of American life and Mexican life uh, some kids in Suidad Mir, a little village, a dusty place, and you wrote, The torment of Suidad Mir, suffering in its dust and neglect, was that the fabulous kingdom of money was just down the street and over the narrow river. Which they can see. Imagine living your whole life a hundred yards from the United States, seeing <laughs> cars going back and forth, hearing, uh, you know, life across the river. A river that that's not hard to cross, by the way. Right. You know, it's the Rio Grande at uh, Ciudad Aleman, Miguel Aleman. On the other side of the river is Roma, Texas. And Roma, Texas is, of course, you know, the promised land. So the people in Mir, um, Ciudad Mir, live their lives right next to the border, as they do at Juarez and Tijuana. And it's, just, and it's, a, it's a reality for them is that there's this kingdom just a half a mile north or within yeah. sight, and yeah. it's out of bounds. They can hear music playing. Well, actually, some do go across. I would say Roma, Texas, has had its day in the sun. It mm. was the location for the movie Viva Zapata, ah. starring Anthony Quinn and Marlon Brando. Mm. So they were the town square in Roma, which is a very small Texas town, was once um, a movie location. But on the Plain of Snakes, my book, I wanted not to see the border, but I, I wanted to find out where people came from. So the people that I met who had been thrown out of the United States or people who were going across the border come from these small very poor villages in Oaxaca and Chile. So you went way south to Oaxaca. Yeah, I did. I did. Because basically, that's you could say that's where some of this immigrant um, action originates. Where the poverty exists, yeah. yeah. And almost in some towns uh, in southern Mexico, well, all over Mexico, really, in a town, there's a tradition of coming to the States. And sometimes yeah. to a particular town or city in the state, Poughkeepsie, New York, for example, is the destination for people from a town called San Agustin Yataremi, 
and in, in Oaxaca. And you, met, you talk to people, they said, oh, yeah, my cousin's in Poughkeepsie, my uncle's in Poughkeepsie, I've been to Poughkeepsie, I've been back. So that's Poughkeepsie. Then others would be Fresno or but there's Bozeman, this, Montana. This, there's the same thing with uh, immigration from Europe. The Basques went to California. Absolutely. The sure. Norwegians went to Duluth and uh, you know, the, the Dutch went to New York. And Finnish people came to Cape Cod, or, or Portuguese came to New Bedford. So that's true, yeah. So there's a tradition, but I wanted to do it in the most efficient way, and I thought I wanted to get to these the hard-to-reach places where there's no bus, there's no train, there's no plane. There's, so I thought, I'll go by car. So I, I drove around Mexico. Probably places where there's not a lot of hope either for younger people. The hope is leaving. Yeah, uh, that's the what they would uh, yeah. have to dream for, tragically. yeah. Paul Theroux is what you might call a dean of American travel writers. Since 1967, Paul has written provocative accounts of his travels, including road and rail trips across Africa, Asia, and the American Deep South. His novels, The Mosquito Coast and St. Jack, were adapted into movies. Paul Theroux is our special guest today on Travel with Rick Steves as we hear about his road trips on the dusty back roads of Mexico to get to know some of the people who live near the U.S. border and as far south as Chiapas and Oaxaca. His website has photos from his adventures in Mexico. It's paultheroux.com. That's spelled T-H-E-R-O-U-X. We'll look at what Ukraine is like as a backdoor tourism destination in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, we're checking in with Paul Theroux about his road trip discoveries across rural Mexico, which he writes about in his book On the Plain of Snakes. It became a bestseller in Mexico even before it was published. Paul's been writing about his epic travels and the many borders he's crossed ever since he joined the Peace Corps back in his early 20s teaching in East Africa. So you went to basically to understand who these migrants that are in the news are and where did they come from and, and what was the root of this um, stress. Uh, you, you met them. Did you see drug dealers, murderers, and rapists? No, I didn't. I saw, I saw little old ladies who, who wanted to make beds in Denver, uh, guys who wanted to do drywall or roofing in you know, San Francisco. People come to Seattle and make tacos. There's an enormous range of people. Those are the Mexicans. Of course, there are Indians and Pakistanis who, sure. who also want to go yeah. across. That, that was a different category. But I found it kind of dramatic to meet someone on the border, Maria, you know, Carlos, Mr. Diaz, and say, where did you come from? And he, they'd mention a town in Oaxaca. Mm -hmm. And I drove there. Hmm. So I drove to the towns and I talked to people. I wanted to see where they come from. One of the things that interests me as a traveler, as a writer, as an American, there are a lot of people in the world who want to leave their country. The Philippines, China, mm -hmm. Brazil, Africa, you know, name of China. And I'm interested, why people leave? Why are they leaving? Where do they want to go? What do they imagine? What are their dreams? What do they wake up in the morning and think? Because uh, when I was the Peace Corps, I had students who said, I'd say, what are your plans? And they'd say, I want to be a teacher, sir. You know, I want to be an astronaut, sir. Or I want, I'd like to be a politician. And I'd say, where? Here, you know, stay in Malawi or Mozambique right. or... Uganda, wherever it was, stay there. Now no one wants to stay. I mean, poverty is so great, or the, the imbalance in the world is so great, that this, it's a world on the move. I mean, seriously on the move. So the people are banging up against borders all the time. 
Now, I'm not saying that I've, I don't favor people swimming across the river or going under mm-hmm. tunnels, but I'm kind of interested just in the situation. You the can kind things, of understand it because of the economic realities? Yeah, well, there's that, but it's also, I don't have a position on it. I just, I, I want to describe what's happening uh-huh. as objectively as I can to just see, you know, why, why is Lewiston, Maine the destination for a lot of people from Somalia? Mm-hmm. I've been to Somalia. When I went to Somalia, no one said, I, I want to go to Lewiston, Maine. That mm-hmm. was in the 1960s. Now, Lewiston, Maine has thousands of Somalis. I, I'm not making a judgment on it. Mm-hmm. I'm merely saying, why are why? they... Why? Why does this why? happen? Yeah. Money is obviously the reason. Well, but, I found... I was just in Guatemala, and I found people would rather, they told me, work and export. And they told me they don't like food in the United States, but they needed to go there. And in a lot of cases, they needed to go there to, like you said, send money home to the family back where they came from. And you find these, what they call them, um, remittance palaces. Yeah, remittance, yes. Yeah, and, yeah. And, you, and every remittance palace, it's a simple cinder block house yeah. that's uh, built with money sent from a loved one who's in the United States working. And it comes with a, an American flag, a, just a very rustic little American flag worked into the stucco work. Really? As a reminder that this was paid for by a loved one who's working in the States as a, as a migrant. But you could say the same in Ghana, sure, in Nigeria, Absolutely. in the Philippines, of people sending money people, back. Well, you, you walk across the border anywhere, and there's a tenfold difference in per capita income yes. from San Diego to Tijuana, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, yeah. from any number of places, and you will have those people crossing the border for that economic reality. As a travel writer and novelist, Paul Theroux has traveled the globe for more than 50 years, bringing us with him into the church basements of the Deep South, riding the rails across Africa to Singapore and through Eastern Europe. He writes about his road trip adventures on the Mexican side of the U.S. border in his book On the Plain of Snakes. His website is paultheroux.com. Paul, when we're talking about your trip, just for people, this is a travel show and a lot of people are listening and wondering, wow, what an adventure. Anybody could do that. It's just a couple hours of a drive away for a lot of Americans. Just talk briefly about just the practicality of it. Did you have to get travel insurance? Uh, do you just drive across the border and do it? Is it safe? Are there hotels? Uh, is it reckless? Well, uh, you know as a traveler that if you tell you, you, you say to someone, I'm going to Bhutan, I'm going to Guatemala, they say, Rick, don't do it, Rick. You'll die. You'll die. And you say, I've got a travel show. I write books. I I, I have guide tours. What are you talking about? So people said to me, it's always a mistake to tell people what you're doing because they'll say, I'm going to get married. Don't get married. I'm having some kids. Don't have kids. (laughs) I'm going to Canada. Why are you out of your mind? So I told people I did, and they said, don't do it. The practicality is don't go in a great car. I have a great four-wheel drive mm-hmm. sport utility car. I would not take to Mexico. Good idea. So I bought a second-hand Nissan, mm-hmm. all-wheel drive, but, you know, second-hand and, mm-hmm. and, and pretty anonymous. You need insurance, and you have to show your insurance papers, and you have to apply for and get a vehicle importation permit, which you get at the border. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, you need money, cash money, and you need to understand the road system, how to get gas, Basically, you need the paperwork. That doesn't take long because no one wants to go and drive to Mexico. So when I went, I drove from Cape Cod, Massachusetts to McAllen, Texas, crossed the border, and the guy said, window number six, no one's there because no one's driving into Mexico. So I went there. I presented my paperwork. You put a $400 deposit. They give you a sticker they put in the window, and off you go. So you're legal on the road in Mexico. Totally legal. 
and you got a car that nobody really is going to think there's a rich yeah, guy in there. And then you you talk to people and they say, tell them your route. They say, I wouldn't go there if I were you. Don't drive at night. And if you do, you meet Hector the Shoeshine Man that yeah. you wrote about. <laughs> say, and he goes, you drove where? Yeah, yeah. And you survived? <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. But the, I found the police noticed my license plate and said, I can take your car. You have these license plates. And I said, what do you want? How can we work this out? So I, that happened four times. A policeman saying, you're a gringo. You got a car. I can take your car and I can put your car in a corralon, which is a, I can impound your car and you, you will be in deep doo-doo. So I said, well, okay, what do you want? And then paid him a mordida. You could be criticized for paying a bribe to a policeman, but the policeman has a gun. He can take your car and he, your, your back is to the wall. Also in India, nothing moves in India without bakshish. Right. So, no, bakshish is a word you learn when you travel. Yeah. But uh, did they, like, do they just really take you to the cleaner or is it 50 or $60, you know, I mean... No, 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 I gave him 20 and he threw it back at me. He wanted $300. Three, and what did you end up paying him? Uh, about 250 250 uh, But I said, you know, soy pensionado. I'm a pensioner. I'm a, yeah. I'm a retired person. I don't have money. Right. He said, go to an ATM. I said, you don't understand. Your first Mexican policeman is pretty terrifying. After that, you kind of learn. So the first time it happened, I was, I was more anxious than I've been in memory. Because I was thinking, I'm stuck. He took me off the road. That was near Mexico City. It happened, as I said, three times after that, and that I understood the routine. So and, this and, is a danger of traveling in Mexico. It's, it's one of the penalties. People will say, you fool, see, I told you so. But actually, I'm a writer. There's something to write about. It's so, the price you pay to have the experience. They're not going to kill you. They're just going to extort some money out of you. Yeah. If yeah. That's, I mean, for a lot of people, they wouldn't be comfortable with that, but, but you are, and you write good books. Speaking I of, didn't like doing it. I didn't like doing it, but I began to understand what happens yeah. to Mexicans and what happens to a lot of people in the States. I mean, they talk the Black Lives Matter movement. They, they talk about being intimidated by the police. And, you know, it's that kind of an experience where you feel completely helpless. In fact, this book is over 400 pages long, and right at the very end, you tell a story about a bribe, and it was on your way home, wasn't it? And, it, it was so, and you felt like you were more confident at that point. I'm totally confident. I was thinking, <laughs> so how can we work this out? It's just like, okay, here we go again. <laughs> they, they were saying there's a three-day waiting period for this and more paperwork yeah. and paperwork, and so, yeah. But on the wall, it said if you, uh, if you played the game of the bribe, it's illegal, right? There was a yes. sign. Yes. So you had to kind of weigh. Yeah, you wonder, am I being tricked into giving a bribe? And then they say, see, I'm going to arrest you for trying to bribe me. But Mexico isn't just bribery and corruption. Actually, it's a, a rich country, more like a world than a country, of many states, many cuisines, many different people, some of the greatest writers in the Western Hemisphere. One I listened to on your show, Juan Villoro, and made a friend of him. He made a memorable appearance on a Rick Steves mm -hmm. show. Uh, so Juan Villoro became a friend. I taught a class in Mexico City just to make friends, I studied uh, Spanish to improve my Spanish in Oaxaca. And, and you, you talked about making friends, and I was going to ask you, really, you made friends? But you really did. It takes time, but you, you got to know these people. Yes, because if you the, the expression is uh, ganar el respeto. If you earn respect yeah. from a Mexican person, the Mexican's are very hospitable, bringing you a mojito, or, you know, that's a friendly waiter and so forth. You could say he's a friendly guy. But to make a friend, a true friend in Mexico, you have a friend for life, I felt, and I felt that they have your back and will help you on your way. I had 30 students, and they said, how can we help? Because I didn't charge them anything. I said, I'm doing this for nothing. I drove here to show my students in Mexico and Mexicans 
we're on the same road. The road from my house in Cape Cod goes to Guatemala, for that matter. It goes to yeah. Guatemala. It's the Pan-American Highway, let's say. So we're, I, I said to the students, we're on the same road. Now, you these know, were students who were teaching English in Mexico City? I was teaching writing. writing I, I, okay. It was like a master class in writing, because all of them were really good writers. Hmm. So I said, we're on the same road. What can I do for you? There? I said, be my friend. Yeah. Let's have lunch, improve my Spanish, and I have a list of things I'd like to do. And one on the list of things was meeting the Zapatistas. Zapatistas are revolutionaries who went into the jungle in 1981 in Chiapas, and they emerged in 1994, January 1st, 1994, when NAFTA was announced. The head of it is some Comandante Marcos, a masked man on horseback at that time. I said, I'd like to meet Marcos. And the fellow said, Marcos will beat you. Will you speak at one of his secret gatherings? I said, I'd be happy to because I was on the board. I said, they said, what would you talk about? I said, I'd like to talk about various factories, various communities that I saw on the border, and just my impressions of the border, because we're in Chiapas, as far south in Mexico as you could go. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, and they said, wanted to know what it was like on the border? Yeah, what's it, what's it like? What's the reality and they knew, on the did ground? they know who you were, or were you just another uh, gringo? Probably vaguely. I th- like you're some writer. Maybe they Googled me. I don't yeah, know, but right. I, I mean, I didn't see any of my books on sale in San Cristobal de las Casas, but, you know, that's immaterial. I, I was kind of interested in them. They're not xenophobic. They said, yeah, come. Right. So that was my, that was one, one so of my... So you had a friend and he, he did you a favor. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Paul Theroux and his new book is On the Plane of Snakes, A Mexican Journey. It's about the wall. It's about the culture behind the wall. It's about Oaxaca, where some of the poorest people in Mexico find they have no alternative than to go to a land where they have some hope. Paul Theroux, you've been writing for over 50 years. What are you, 78 years old now? Yeah, yeah, I'm an What's old guy. A, boy, you must... I think it's kind of cool for, from a Mexican point of view to think... Here's an, a senior American down here curious about the culture. Yes. What, what Was it an advantage to be traveling in your 70s? It's a great advantage in, in Mexico because in Mexico, an older person gets respect. In the States, you're likely to be in a doctor's office and they say, someone saying, Paul, the doctor will see you. And they think, Paul, do I know you? I'm 78 years old. Yeah. In Mexico, I'm Don Pablo. I'm a senora. I'm, I'm a tío. I'm an uncle. So that's a cultural so, thing, the respect for, for Respect elders. for age is right. very common in Mexico. So, mm-hmm. so it's a pleasure to be among people who respect you because most old people are invisible and uh, sitting ducks. I mean, an old person in, in another country. In, is, well, in Chicago, it probably makes it more dangerous. Yes. But in Mexico, you felt it, it I felt, was I less, felt respected. I felt appreciated. Wow. And people helped me on my way because of that. By the way, how, how many months were you in Mexico to write this book? What do you think? I took seven trips of anywhere from six weeks to two months. And I kept going. I left my car across the border and I kept going back So you spent forth. over a year doing this. Yeah. Then. Well, yeah. two years, actually. Two years. All right. Now, I really like, Paul, what you talk about is finding the eternal Mexico. And you made a point. It wasn't in the big cities, but it was in... The dusty villages where everything has a fine film of dust. You know, people peering through cracks in doors, um, you know, glassy eyes from people drinking the the local fire water, shepherds with their crooks, Zona Rosas, red light districts. Talk a little bit about finding that uh, eternal Mexico. Someone once said, it was actually V.S. Pritchett, said, the past of a place survives in its poor. So if you go, you went to Guatemala and it was very poor. When you go to a place that's very poor, they have no money. They have, they still have their language. They have their culture. They have their traditions. And they're more likely to keep it because they have no money. They have that. So if they're making mezcal the traditional way and they have no money, they'll keep making it the traditional way. They have their own festivals. In one village, they had no money at all. But 
the money was weaving a hat. Weave a hat, it's uh, five pesos, and they use the hat as currency. So everyone in this village, Santa Maria Excatlan, in the mountains, was hat weaving. The hats end up in the bazaar, in the market, but there's no money. But well, you, you, you went into another town where the, it was just like dusty and kind of no metabolism at all. The church was no longer a church. It was where they ma- they said, instead of praying, we make mezcal. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Tell us a little so, bit about that experience. Well, I mean, this is the past. So people are still pious, but what they have is their traditional either mezcal making or palm weaving or growing garlic or whatever it is. And I found those towns very rich in stories because the other thing that the poor, I'm not romanticizing the poor. I'm saying in Mexico, they, they really, in some places, they just have no money. You could say they're not poor. They just don't have any money, but they have stories and they have ambitions. They have dreams. So they want to go to Mexico City. They want to go to the border and they want to send money back. And then they want to educate their children and live their lives. And probably not very many Americans who go to Mexico find that eternal Mexico. What, what would your one tip to finding the eternal Mexico be? What do you have to do? Get in a car. Make sure that your tires are properly inflated and you have a full tank of gas and keep driving into the mountains as far as you can go. And you might meet a hitchhiker and the hitchhiker will say, it's just a little bit further. And you say, what's the name of this town? And he'll say, it's Cohaxtlihuaca. And you say, what does that mean? And he'll say, el llano de los serpientes. And you say, what is that? It's the plain of snakes. And that happened to me. There you go. That's travel wisdom anywhere on this planet if you want to really find the eternal of that culture. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Paul Theroux. His book is On the Plain of Snakes, A Mexican Journey. And Paul, at the very end of your book, you write one of the great thrills in travel is to know the satisfaction of arrival and to find yourself among friends. And then you you share a a Mexican quote, a, a traditional folk quote, all of us are mule drivers headed down the road. Elaborate on that just to wrap up our conversation. I think Mexico is a near neighbor. It's our closest neighbor along with Canada. We have a common destiny. And I kept thinking we're on the same road. And that we're, what are we doing? We're just mule drivers moving down the road. And we're facing the same issues, climate change, hunger, poverty, bad government. And Mexicans complain about their government. Everyone complains about their politician. And Mexicans tend not to complain about the American government. They say, we're in the same boat. We're in the same car. We're in the same. We're just traveling along the same road. And I discovered actually in Mexico that one of the most satisfying things you can do in travel is to get your car in the morning and go. So the road trip served me well in Mexico. It did when I wrote about the Deep South. And I thought the ultimate freedom actually is to have your car and to get it in the morning and go down that road where the mule drivers are. Paul Theroux, thank you so much for a lifetime of bringing home your travel experiences. Best wishes with your new book, On the Plain of Snakes, A Mexican Journey, and reminding us that all of us are mule drivers heading down the road. Thank you. You can listen to Paul Theroux's earlier appearances on Travel with Rick Steves in our show archives at ricksteves.com radio. 
That's where you can hear Paul describe what he learned about the people he met on the back roads of the American South. That's program number 445A from October of 2017. Ukraine for tourists. We'll hear why a pair of travel writers think it's poised to be a great travel destination. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Your fellow tourists are not likely to speak English, but visa-free entry for Europeans and North Americans makes it easy to get in. Still, Ukraine has not been on the radar for most Western travelers, apart from being a player in America's political drama. A bit before Ukraine elected its own TV personality as president, the co-author of the Rick Steves' Eastern Europe Guidebook invited an Eastern Europe historian friend to explore further east of their usual haunts. They dove into Ukraine as a tourist destination, and they loved it. Cameron Hewitt and Ben Curtis join us now to take your calls at 877-333-7425. Cameron and Ben, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. So, Cameron, why Ukraine? Of all the things, you could have gone back to Spain and updated our guidebook. You know, because it's there. I mean, honestly, I was running out of new places to go, and uh, Ben and I both have a passion for Eastern Europe. So I shot him an email and said, hey, do you want to go try this out? It was one of the last remaining frontiers. And I think we both came into it with uh, tempered expectations. And we were just both, I think I can speak for us both, we're really just blown away with it. It's a great place to travel. And Ben, we're not talking Moldova here or Lithuania or something. This is a major country. It's a huge country. I mean, it's one of the largest countries in Europe. And like you were saying, it's overlooked, but it has this deep, rich, fascinating history. And you don't even have to go that far back for the interesting history because there's very recent stuff, which is incredibly interesting and powerful to try to learn about. So I want to get into all of these sightseeing details and so on. But first, let's talk nitty gritty. Just what is involved? Uh, Cameron, do you just fly in and, and take a taxi downtown and, and you're on your way? Or, or It's even better. You take an Uber downtown for 10 bucks. An and, Uber? Yep. You don't need a visa. Um, we flew in. We happened to meet up in Vienna after some other travels. And it's a one-hour flight from Vienna. So from Western Europe, it's just one or two hours. You know, it's very... So you fly into Frankfurt and you can connect to Madrid or you can connect to Kiev and it's the same thing. Exactly right, mm-hmm. yeah. And so, it's yeah, it's very straightforward, very affordable. Um, you I was, was going to say, you could fly to Madrid and spend a lot of money or you could <laughs> fly to Ukraine and probably live high on the hog for the same amount of money. We were continually blown away by, by how affordable it was. Yeah. Well, what's an example um, of the cost, Ben? So, one time when Cameron and I, we laughed and I don't want to sound kind of condescending to Ukrainians or the country, but... We had a fantastic multi-course meal in a great Georgian restaurant. We walked out of there, and it just includes, you know, appetizers, mains, desserts, drinks. We walked out of there, and we spent $20, both of us, in total. Total. Yeah, you're right. You don't want to laugh about because things are so cheap, but you want to laugh at how you can be stressed out by going to a restaurant, and you had this experience, and you didn't even need to... It's like, order whatever you want, high on the menu. Cameron, that's fun when you go into a country because you can choose a nicer restaurant, and you can just order whatever appeals. Exactly, yeah. You can really live behind the menu. And, you know, like a cross-town Uber trip. At one point, we were like, well, we could hike 20 minutes or 25 minutes through town to get to this outlying site. Or we could just order an Uber, and $3 later, we were we were at the next place. Less than a subway ticket in a lot of so, Western European capitals. And uh, how's your Ukrainian? <laughs> I have no Ukrainian. <laughs> uh, it is, I was going to say, one challenge is there is a language barrier. Ben speaks Russian, which helped a lot. You have to be patient and... Uh, you know, for the most part, especially the cities we're going to talk about here, they're, right. they're Western looking, they're open. They're ready for the tourists. There's some English suppose, spoken, yeah. but that's something you do have to be ready for. When we're thinking about cuisine, you were talking about how easy and affordable it is. I remember when I was in 
Russia, they're all excited about Georgian cuisine. It's just like here in the United States, you know, we have a lot of great Mexican restaurants. And in Ukraine, is it Ukrainian or is there other states nearby that have their own cuisine that you would enjoy in the big city in Ukraine as well? Yeah, both, I think. You don't think of this part of the world, kind of Eastern Europe, for great food. But I want to encourage people to change their minds because you can eat incredibly well there. (laughs) As we said, for great value, for spending very little money, eat very, very well. Hearty. I like it because it's carb-tastic and I have a thing for carbs. I'll admit that. Great, like, dumplings, cabbage rolls, good soups. If you like borscht, there's 30 kinds of borscht Mm. you can eat there, the great beet soups. Sounds great. Now, of course, there's been a lot of heavy history and a lot of hard history for Ukraine. And uh, as travelers there who are curious and uh, want to learn about this, talking to people directly, what's the sense? Uh, You've got the specter of Russia there. You've got all sorts of issues going on with uh, democracy and autocrats and so on. Cameron... Yeah, the sense is it's complicated, and it's always been extremely complicated. It's one of these parts of Europe that's really a crossroads, and it's surrounded by big, powerful, mighty empires. You've got Russia on one side, you've got Poland, and to a certain degree, the Germanic world on the other side, and it's kind of gone back and forth between the two. So you you did kind of, I think we got the sense that Ukraine is only just now starting to define its own national identity, because for a lot of its history, it was sort of someone else's backyard, you know? So that was really interesting. As recently as 2014, there was an uprising, an armed uprising, to kick out an unpopular president who was very, very, very friendly with Russia. And so, you know, all of the Lenin statues have been torn down and replaced with this great national poet of the 19th century. And people told us this guy, Shevchenko, is sort of emerging as like the Ukrainian national figure in a way that no one's ever really thought of Ukraine in a national way before. Don't you kind of cringe and think, go easy, you guys. You don't want to get the big bear mad. I mean, Russia could come in like they took Crimea. What's to well, stop they, them? They are in. Yeah, they, <laughs> they are in. Yeah. And that's the, that's, the, yeah. that's the other interesting thing. Traveling there is we were curious to learn about that and talking to people in, you know, it's a huge country and you're in Kiev and, and they're talking about a war that's going on in their, in their eastern reaches uh, yeah. against, uh, you know, Ukrainian separatists who are financed by Russia, most likely, um, mm-hmm. in Crimea, which was annexed by Russia. And interesting to talk to people living in other parts of the country. And What's the, the vibe for Americans on the street of Kiev? We felt very welcome, mm-hmm. and I think it's a great place to learn. And curious? It, yeah. People and, curious? They want to talk to you? or Yeah, and they were. we didn't want to come on too strong, but we were very curious about their culture, and we found people were really open and interesting, hmm. interested in sharing their stories with us. And I would encourage people listening that whatever you hear about Ukraine might be based on the troubles in the East where Russia is fomenting, you know, conflict, but you're not going to encounter that in Kiev, right? You're not going to encounter that in Lviv. It's perfectly safe. That's important to remember. We're, we're not talking Belgium here. This is a big country, mm-hmm. and there's a, a border problem on, on one side, and, and you're on the other side. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Cameron Hewitt and Ben Curtis. We're talking about Ukraine. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Keith's on the line in Chicago. Keith, have you been in, in Ukraine? I have been. We actually traveled there as part of an around-the-world trip, and um, we were there for just over a week. So we visited Kiev and uh, Odessa. And how was your experience in Kiev? It was great. I wanted to go to Kiev probably more than uh, my wife, simply because I wanted to visit and photograph in the Chernobyl area. So we did that tour, and it was a it was an incredible tour and really nice to it's not really dark tourism. I mean, there's some really good uh, monuments. There's some really interesting history that's part of that crisis and that tragedy. And so, We're talking about the power plant in Chernobyl. Chernobyl, right. right. And, um, well, let's talk and about so, that for a moment. Uh, Cameron and Ben, you guys went out to uh, Chernobyl. What was your experience there? 
Uh, the same. I, it was fascinating. Uh, it was amazing how accessible it is. You mm-hmm. know, f- for a full day, like a twelve-hour round trip and a hundred bucks, they'll take in. You know, you can literally stand up across the street from this the is reactor a site. Day trip from Ukraine from, from, from Kiev. Kiev. Yeah, it's about a two-hour each-way bus ride. It's just considered a part of seeing Kiev. Is yeah, you spend a, of, a day on a on a side trip. Yeah, a lot of people going to Kiev would take that as a, as the most likely day trip. Do you have to wear a hazmat outfit? No, they give you Geiger counters, so you can kind of monitor your own. Uh, radiation exposure, you come across some hot spots where that Geiger counter spikes. But generally what they tell you is that you're going to be exposed to less radiation in visiting Chernobyl than you would receive on a transatlantic plane flight. So it's not a real health concern. Okay, so you go to Chernobyl. Why do you go there? Is it just a, kind of a voyeurism or is there a culture there? Are there cute towns or did everybody leave it and it's reclaimed by nature? It's more the reclaimed by nature. I mean, there are people who go kind of to rubberneck at human tragedy, but I think we just both have studied a lot of, of the history of this part of the world, and it was yeah. interesting to learn more about the actual event that ended up being really instrumental in the fall of the Soviet Union, some would say, and also to see these Soviet-era towns that in some cases were built a decade before that have now been completely reclaimed by nature. Keith, how did you experience Chernobyl? It, yeah, it was the same thing. It was, it was roughly a $100 tour, English guides, um, really comfortable van that, that nice. we went out at. It is so interesting to see the way nature has reclaimed some of those areas and talk to some of the people who work there every day because there's people who continue to work at that power plant. You know, this this conversation reminds me a long time ago, a long, long time ago, I was in a train from Frankfurt to Rotenburg, and I was going to do my annual update of Rotenburg, where all the tourists go in Germany. And I decided, I've done this before. I've been there, done that. I stayed on the train, and I went to Prague, and that was my introduction to the wonders of, quote, Eastern Europe. And it was just staying on the train for two more hours, and it was a whole different world. And today, a generation later, you can fly into Frankfurt, and instead of connecting to Munich, you could connect to Kiev. And that little bold move would introduce you to Europe. I mean, Ukraine is Europe. Mm -hmm. We always say Eastern Europe. Well, well, this is Eastern Europe, I think, rather than Hungary and uh, Czech Republic. And it is just something that is so accessible and not one in 300 tourists Mm -hmm. even consider it. Thanks so much for your call, Keith. Thank you. Ben Curtis and Cameron Hewitt are introducing us to Ukraine as a visitor destination right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Cameron writes the Rick Steves Eastern Europe Guidebook. Among Ben Curtis's titles are The Habsburgs, A History of a Dynasty, and A Traveler's History of Croatia. Ben, how would you describe Kiev as a city, a capital? Kiev, you wouldn't think about this probably, but Kiev, I would say, is actually one of the great historical cultural capitals of Eastern Europe, especially you kind of think the Eastern Slavic world. So everything east from Poland, right? You probably think of Moscow, probably think of St. Petersburg, right? But a thousand years ago, Kiev was a thriving city when Moscow was a camp in the woods and St. Petersburg was a marsh. I have this image of uh, the stands, all the capital cities in the stands with their domes and their striking central ceremonial architecture, and I, it's got that exotic flavor. I have this sense that Kiev has a little bit of that golden domes and so on, Cameron. Yeah, it feels like a very Eastern Slavic city. It, it's I kind of thought it reminded me of Moscow, but on a smaller scale, mm-hmm. a lot more colorful. We were surprised. Um, you know, the main drag was blown up in World War II by the USSR as the Nazis were approaching. And so Mm -hmm. it's all been rebuilt in this very stately communist style. Mm -hmm. But if you go beyond that main drag, it's beautiful, colorful Art Nouveau townhouses. There's a certain sophistication and class in Kiev that I I wasn't expecting given um, it's kind of low profile on the international stage. And yet, you know, even though it's it's got scars from its its long and tormented history, there's some incredible historical monuments. And one of the ones that blew me away the most is St. Sophia's Cathedral. Mm. It's this 
church that is a thousand years old and you go in there and you can see a thousand year old frescoes. Mm. You go to Berlin, you go to London, you go to Paris, you go to Madrid, there's no thousand year old and frescoes these, In there. spite of all the, the tumult, these have survived mm-hmm. in situ, a yeah. thousand years. Yeah. That's remarkable, really. When you think of the scorched earth policy of so many wars and so on, that's a real blessing that is even there at all. Yeah, it's spectacular. Okay, so they've got this uh, more distant heritage, but I would imagine there's also the Soviet heritage, part of the USSR, I mean, towering motherland monument and so on. Can you describe that? Think a more bombastic Statue of Liberty overlooking the great Dnieper River and surrounded by the great forests of kind of Eastern Europe. And it's hilarious. It's amazing. It's filled with this barely kind of retouched Soviet-era World War II museum. But you know, not to make light of the incredible suffering that the Soviet peoples went through in trying to, just, you know, repel the Nazi threat. So that is a memorial to the the motherland great, statue, the great yeah. battles of World War II. Exactly, then. and that's horrific losses. People often underestimate how the Soviet Union paid a dear price. Ukraine as, specifically, mm, um, yeah. even before World War II, Stalin's um, yeah. basically starved Ukraine to feed the rest of the empire. So, Cameron, you USS uh, war museums all over Europe. How does the World War II museum at the base of that tower stack up? Well, like Ben said, what was really interesting is that it's you get the sense that this is a very young country and a country that is still just sort of staking its claim to independence because most of the exhibits were the exact same exhibits from when it was part of the USSR. So they had mm. a very kind of Soviet spin. Two things that struck me as being really different. One is the last room is completely different because, of course, before the last room would have been celebration of the great victory of the USSR and building a great new world. Now it's a very, very poignant Ukrainian focused uh, with a big symbolic, basically a big symbolic table that's uh, sort of a Slavic funeral feast, kind of honoring all of the people who were lost, which was really poignant. And then from that room, you go back out into the main atrium. And this really just gave me chills. Out in the main atrium, they had a temporary exhibit about the war that's going on right now in eastern Ukraine with Russia with a bunch of tattered flags that had been sent to the front and then brought back. Hmm. And as you push the door open to go out and see those flags, you push a big door handle that's shaped like a hammer and sickle. So and it survives. They've it left survives, up. right. So they've left up the Russian hammer and sickle that you have to push out to get to the monument oh, I love about it. the war against Russia. Oh. Is, uh, it tells you a lot about uh, Ukraine's position in history. And there's something poignant about a tourist who's used to the West, an American tourist and so on, visiting Ukraine where there's a conflict going on right now. Mm-hmm. And it's not a new conflict. There's been that tension for, for generations and generations. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Cameron Hewitt and Ben Curtis about Ukraine. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Dennis is on the line from Wyckoff in New Jersey. Dennis, thanks for your call. Uh, What's your experience in Ukraine? We've been there three times over the last 10 years. Uh, We're a couple in the 60s. Basically, we always start in Lviv and go to Kiev, Odessa, and also the Carpathian Mountains, cross the Carpathians Mm -hmm. and go to Rakhiv and then Ujgorod and go out to Hungary. And our experience is, uh, has been fantastic. We've been to most other countries in Europe. It's cheap. It's extremely diverse. Hmm. Uh, we always take public transportation, uh, including those, you know, $1 uh, cars. And uh, going into Ukraine, we've done twice from Poland, one with actually the local bus, once with an overnight train, and hmm. once flying in from Germany. So we've done everything. And within Ukraine, we have always taken overnight trains. Mm-hmm. Uh, and usually, if it's, uh, we always go first class if we can get it. It's two beds. We have our own private compartment. If that's full, we actually take the whole second class compartments, four beds, 
we use two of them. And even then, it's like $40. Yes, I, I remember that just from other experience deep into Eastern Europe is just, if you want the privacy of a second-class compartment, just buy up all the beds. I mean, it's, it's that cheap. You know, uh, it sounds like you've enjoyed Lviv, and that mm-hmm. is a nice compliment to Kiev. I understand it's, it's sort of the historic old capital. What, what is Lviv like? To me, it's, it reminds us of a combination of Krakow and Vienna because it has the Viennese cafe culture. In fact, it's better than most places I've been in Vienna. Hmm. And it has the Catholic Ukrainian church culture, and then the Orthodox Ukrainian uh, church culture, and then the old Habsburg culture. So there's so much there that I don't know where to start. It's really old Europe probably Germany, you know, maybe 80 years ago. I love the thought that it's a, sort of a Ukrainian uh, crack-off, because a lot of people, you know, Warsaw is the big dominant city, kind of the, maybe the Kiev, and the historic old capital. In fact, I think Lviv has that connection with Polish history. Cameron, what's your take on Lviv? Yeah, Dennis put it exactly right. It actually was a culturally a Polish city for a lot of its history. Mm-hmm. After World War II, they shifted the borders. They actually moved the Polish people from Lviv to a city in, in what's now Poland. Mm. But it does, as someone who's traveled a lot in Poland, it felt very, very familiar. There was a sense of deja vu. It's got the beautiful main square that kind of feels like a smaller version of that great main square in Krakow. It has beautiful churches. It's interesting. A lot of the churches feel Catholic from the outside and even the inside, but they're Orthodox. It tells you a little bit about the cultural heritage there. They have something called Greek Catholic, which Greek is Catholic, okay. which is uh, the technically Catholic, but the liturgy is more like Orthodox. So you do really feel like what you really are, which is at a crossroads of cultures. And this is Lviv, L-V-I-V. Ben, what's your memory of Lviv when you were there? I think Lviv is a great introduction to Ukraine for people who might be a bit curious, but right. you know don't really know where to start because it, it has that great historical fabric. It is, as Cameron and Dennis have said, this kind of nice. medium cultures, uh, but it's really easy. It's manageable size. They're used to tourists. Dennis, thanks for your call. Yeah, you're welcome. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Cameron Hewitt and Ben Curtis about their adventure in Ukraine. And Ben and Cameron, talking to you guys about this, it just reminds me to think even broader than Ukraine, that you can have soft adventures by choosing to go places that are just a little beyond, just a little bit off the radar, going beyond tourism. And in these days, I think that's more important than ever. That's something I thought a lot about a lot while we were traveling around Ukraine. I've been hearing a lot the last year or two about the really famous places in Europe are getting so crowded, they're almost unpleasant to visit. And I got to tell you, we had Ukraine to ourselves. We went to this gorgeous Orthodox monastery complex in Kiev on a hill overlooking the river with gorgeous domes. And then you go into these underground crypts where you see the graves of all the old uh, monks who used to live there. We spent probably two or three hours on a, on a busy Sunday touring the place. And as we were leaving, it suddenly occurred to us we had not seen a single other American traveler there. And uh, it was just really exciting to feel like we were in on something secret, you know. Thank you guys very much. Thank you. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by yours truly, Tim Tatton, with Isaac kaplan Wilner and Kazmura Hall at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and Amara Kitnikone. We get promotional support from Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You'll find guest information, and you can listen again on demand at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. 
Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.